Blast off on another episode of Hero Paranormal Podcast, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51. My name is Ryan, the original outlaw of the airwaves, bringing you an amazing episode today. Our guest today is a phenomenal individual with mind-blowing accuracy at approaching the UFO subject from a scholarly perspective. From a solid base of reason as a philosophical radical volunteerist, our guest Joe Buchman is the uncle we all wish we had. An adventure traveler, former congressional candidate at the Utah Libertarian Party, sky watcher, worked at the Libertarian Party Platform Committee from 2012 to 2013, former volunteer at Sundance Institute, former chair at Libertarian Party, has a Master's of Science in Management, and has met and kept friendships with many of the brightest minds in the UFO field. According to Wired Magazine, he is a web-savvy edupunk. And I think that's a great description. He has connected many dots, keeping the pulse of research from a ufology standpoint, and I value Joe as a human being and value his philosophical views of life and understandings of the machinations behind the veil known as politics. Among his favorite quotes, democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. And with a republic, the sheep has a gun. It's not just political views that astound me the most about Joe. My admiration is vividly tied to his kind humanitarian way of approaching the sacred mystery of UFOs and those involved with its research. Nothing draws more interest to many than the so-called invisible college of ufology. Is it real or is it imaginary? The participants may be anonymous because of the often associated stigma that comes with the tales of UFOs and little green men. However, a group of academics, scientists, and many others belong to a domain just outside of public view, yet teeming with collective revelations from intelligence communities, civilian research think tanks, and military insiders. The fascinating result is a group that for all plausibility does not exist in any formal way. The Invisible College, as J. Allen Hynek called them, whether real or not in a formal group sense, are very much invisible, and yet a force upon the UFO field many will purport are the players at the frontiers of research. They identify hoaxers and out-hoaxers' websites among themselves, but not publicly. Their grapevine of information is much like that of a secret society. They hang on to alleged pieces of alien craft as if they were puzzle pieces to the Holy Grail. They are typically intelligent and successful, yet shy away from public scrutiny. The Invisible College is quite literally a moving wave of information collectives on a mission to solve humanity's greatest questions. Joe has unique views on just about everything, 
and I couldn't think of a better person to help myself and others understand the mysterious reality or myth of the Invisible College and Disclosure in general. Joe, welcome to the Hero Paranormal Podcast. Well, you're very kind, Ryan. I appreciate that introduction uh, very much, and, and in the world of precise scholarship, I was not chair of the Libertarian Party's National Committee, just uh, chair of the Libertarian Party of Utah, which was quite enough. Um, but, uh, yeah, I am a philosophical, radical voluntarist. I believe in the use of zero force to initiate any kind of political uh, or social change. Uh, I don't um, oppose the use of force to react to force being taken against uh, uh, another, but I, I would want that minimized. And, and maybe I'm actually leaning toward pacifism, which is the best way to react to, to force or violence is with... Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi's approach of of uh, civil disobedience and, and holding up a mirror to those who would think that force is ever appropriate. Mm-hmm. And to cut to the chase in this interview, I'd like to imagine a universe that's teeming with life would have encountered that as a natural law of survival. That you, you just don't get to be someone who initiates violence against others and have that be genetically reinforced behavior in the longest of terms, uh, and that those societies in a natural way die out, and that more enlightened folks who hold non-initiation of aggression as a core value expand. And I hope that's the universe we live in. I don't know. And when I hear myself say things like that, I realize that then encountering cosmology and, and, and UFOs, if you like, then it does become something of a philosophical or almost religious uh, encounter, which anyone who's been out west where I live and looked at the night sky, knows that cosmology, by definition, is a religious experience, right? Right. That sense of just um, an infinity out there of which we are but the tiniest of specks, having our great dramas play out on planet Earth. It's good to be here, and thank you for inviting me to be on your show. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have you here, and you're entirely right. UFOs and technology and religion, they all kind of intermix and... Joe, you've caught glimpses behind the scenes of some of the brightest and best ufology has to offer, calling Congress to hold open hearings on the government's extraterrestrial-related activities. In your experience, is is disclosure coming, and is the Invisible College a real thing? In my experience, the Invisible College uh, is a real thing. Uh, It depends on how any given individual defines that, but I think the overarching sense of it is absolutely real. Um, I feel a little bit like the Forrest Gump of of ufology. I just keep bumping into incredible people with incredible stories to tell that I find credible, or at least worthy of careful attention. Mm -hmm. And um, among those, uh, Dr. Hal Putoff, for me, would be near the top of that list. I am a member of the Society of Scientific Exploration, a group of academics that publishes a journal, holds a conference, and uh, touches what might be called edge science, things that aren't taken seriously within the ivory towers of traditional academe but are worthy of study. Uh, others who look at those issues, Dr. Dean Radin at uh, IONS, which was started by the sixth man to walk on the moon, Dr. Ed Mitchell, um, Dr. John Alexander, 
published a couple of books, which I find absolutely fascinating, UFOs, myths, realities, conspiracies, reality denied, things that couldn't happen but did. I think I'm pretty close to having those titles accurate. Um, uh, these are individuals who I find um, uh, fascinating. And, and most recently, pre-COVID at a SSE meeting in um, Las Vegas in 2018, Hal Putoff got the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. I think it's called the Dinsdale Award. Gave a speech. Uh, it was a joint meeting of, of uh, the Society for Scientific Exploration and the International Remote Viewing Association, IRBA, IRBA. Mm-hmm. Um, as your listeners are, are tuning in, uh, you know, jot these organizations and books down and do some reading. Uh, look over the websites. Consider attending those conferences if they ever happen again. Uh, IRVA is made up of the people who were employed by the United States government to do psychic spying for the CIA. That really happened. It's part of our documented, uh, revealed, formally classified government history. It really, really happened. Trained by uh, people at the Monroe Institute. Robert Monroe and his book, Journeys Out of the Body. So this phenomenology of, of uh, our true nature, you know, are we some sort of being that has chosen to have a human experience and is wearing some sort of meat suit, meat-based space suit on planet Earth for a while, and then our greater life is something more than this? I don't know. Uh, but remote viewing would suggest that human beings have a cognitive ability to perceive things at a distance, something also studied at IAMS. Um, well, anyhow, Hal Putoff was giving a, a, a speech uh, accepting this award at a joint meeting of SSE and IRVA and said, you know, many of you know that I was a founding member of, of IRVA, but I'm also being given this award for my work on UFOs, and I've never published anything about UFOs, so why would that be? Well, and then he says, and you, and you can find this transcript uh, up at Stephen Bassett's website, Paradigm Research Group, and, and maybe elsewhere on the Internet, too. I, I know this quote pretty well because I was in the audience. I got the recording of what he said, immediately typed it up, and sent it off to Steve. Steve published it on his website. For a while, I thought I was going to get in trouble for that, but um, mm-hmm. I sent it to Dr. Kelleher, Clem Kelleher at, at, at Bass, and he forwarded it to Hal, and I just gave it as a gift. Here's a transcript of what you actually said. So Hal said something very much like, the reason I haven't published on UFOs is I was part of a highly classified program. If I were to do so, I would uh, encounter severe punitive consequences from NDAs. And um, I haven't been able to talk about this, but now there's some things in the public domain that I can talk about, so hang on to your seats. And I was blown away in the next half hour Mm -hmm. uh, there in Las Vegas at that 2018 Society of Scientific Exploration conference where he talked about the nature of metamaterials. And I think we're only beginning when you, when you combine UFOs and our true nature of life in the cosmos and, and technology, this was the intersection of that in a profound way. Metamaterials are, are materials that are manufactured using extraordinary processes not available uh, or discovered by humanity before fairly recently, maybe a little bit further back in the black world. But this layering at an atomic level of, of different fundamental elements from the periodic table. And so he talked about some recovered material uh, that was sent to Art Bell, uh, radio talk show host Art Bell, what was known as Art's Parts back in the 90s. 
And a lot of people thought this was a hoax and just some melted aluminum and, and alleged to have been recovered by somebody at a, at a crash site of some apparently non-human created craft uh, passed down to, I think, a son and then passed on to art. So there's no provenance in terms of being able to document where this came from with scientific certainty or even at the level of legal certainty. But Linda Moulton Howe got it, did an analysis of it in the 90s, analysis has continued, and it turned out to be layers of bismuth and magnesium, and bismuth and magnesium, in a way that nobody could do on Earth. They took it to various manufacturing plants, national labs. Nobody could understand why somebody would want to do this. We couldn't get bismuth and magnesium to adhere the way that it was adhering in the sample. So it was a kind of a mystery. And this is what Dr. Putoff is, is talking about at that Society of Scientific Exploration meeting. You can find videos of this speech now uh, at the SSE website. Maybe it's even up on YouTube for free. I'm not sure. But at the time, we'd all signed uh, non-disclosure agreements uh, about the conference. And I thought it was so important that uh, I typed it up and sent it to Steve Bassett immediately. And, and Steve put it up on his website. And, and, it, and that turned out to be fine. Um, the end days weren't about that kind of sharing. It had more to do with people profiting off of Mm-hmm. things that uh, might be said or done there. Anyhow, I went up to Hal after his speech and had an extraordinary conversation um, where I said the doctor put off, uh, um, you know, um, I'm a hardcore libertarian. And, and by the way, that includes having some critical things to say about the Libertarian Party. I'm, I'm not an unreserved fan of everything that the organization does, but I am a hardcore libertarian. I, I believe in individual liberty and engaging with others through peaceful means, education, persuasion, not force or taxation. Um, and we can get into the details of that later. But it said to how I believe in government transparency, the minimum government possible. That's just who I am philosophically. And I think you already knew that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, but if I were to be read into this program, whoever's got these meta materials, whoever's been trying to reverse engineering it, whoever has more knowledge than, than the rest of us about what actually happened in Roswell in 47 or, or what we may know of whether we're alone in the universe or not. If I were read into that, you think even with my philosophical orientation, I would agree that it's in the best interests of humanity not to disclose this information. I mean, if I knew what the big secret was, would I agree with it? I think sometimes that perhaps... The reason the ETs haven't landed on the White House lawn or the reason that humans who may be aware that there's non-human intelligence engaging us haven't talked about it is because humanity right now is very much like a caterpillar and a chrysalis struggling to emerge as the butterfly. And as much as you might want to help that caterpillar emerge from that suffocating cocoon, when humans do that, the, the butterfly dies because it needs the struggle of fighting its way out of the cocoon to develop muscles that will allow it to fly as a butterfly. And I wonder if the aliens aren't looking at us like that. We need to leave these people alone in their nest that they've made such a mess of, <laughs> see if they can clean it up. And we ache for them to join us as peaceful, enlightened beings in a cosmos of, of others with that orientation. I'd like to imagine that's where we are. Now, I didn't say all that to Hal, so I'll back up. So I said to Hal, if I were read into this program, would I agree that it's a good idea to keep it really secret? And he looked at the carpet, 
And then he looked up at me and he said, you know, it's a really good question. He said, I don't know, but I don't find the reasons for keeping it secret as compelling as the gatekeepers do. Mm. And I was just stunned. I wish I could go back in time and say, gatekeepers? Who are the gatekeepers? Right. So when you ask, is there an invisible college? Yeah, I think maybe Hal has bumped up against the edges of it. Maybe he's even inside of it to some degree. I don't know. But I was listening to an interview with Lou Elizondo just in the last day, and he's talking about amnesty for the group that may have been studying recovered non-human created technology and that that group stopped briefing Congress and stopped briefing the executive and has gone rogue, and that one way to get disclosure, to get those guys to open up, is to offer them amnesty, uh, truth and reconciliation along the, the path laid out by Nelson Mandela and the way that healed uh, South Africa. And I'm, I'm stunned by that. So uh, if there's no such group, uh, that would be an extraordinary thing for Lou Elizondo to be making up out of thin air. Um, is there a group out there, I wonder, that knows a lot more about where we are on the food chain of, of the most technologically competent life in the cosmos that's been keeping this a secret? And, and do they really believe their reasons for keeping it secret are in our best interests? Or are they some sort of uh, breakaway civilization like Richard Dolan talks about that should be reined back in. I don't know. I'm not close enough to any of that to know, but I've bumped up around the edges of it enough to say, wow, this is really interesting, and there might might be something going on here worthy of my attention. And that, that then became a motivation for running for Congress, first in, in 2008 and then again in a special election here in Utah in 2017 after Jason Chaffetz resigned right after getting elected. It uh, cost the state about $5 million. I, I think he should have paid that out of pocket. Mm-hmm. But um, when I ran in 2008, I got ridiculing news coverage like the park record in, in Park City, Utah, my hometown, front page story immigration taxes, and little green men, libertarian with a twist, Joe Bookman. And it was nothing but ridicule and degradation. Uh, KSL Radio uh, made fun of me Um, in a lighthearted, you know, good-humored way, I suppose. But I was in Washington, D.C. I announced that campaign at the National Press Club, uh, thanks to Steve Bassett holding a media event there after one of his ex-conferences. I'll be out forever grateful to Steve for that. I think Steve does good work. Um, so I'm in D.C. I announced my campaign. I'm going to call for Congress to pass legislation to protect whistleblowers. You know, right now we persecute whistleblowers. Um, we Definitely. intimidate them. Definitely. Uh, we, uh, we do horrible things to people who suggest our government has engaged in, in criminal activity. So I saw a path to healing that being Congress passes resolutions, legislation, protecting whistleblowers on anything related to government waste, fraud, criminal activity, or the ET issue. The ET issue was the fourth of those. And of course, that's all anybody wanted to focus on when they wanted to make fun uh, of me. When I ran again in 2017, it was a sea change. Uh, I was actually taken fairly seriously. Um, Got in seven debates, got reasonable media coverage, and uh, 
I developed what at least I experienced as a friendship with the guy who won that uh, election, Congressman John Curtis, former mayor of Provo, Utah, now serving in the United States House. Uh, he and I have continued to email exchange. I just attended one of his open houses. He was very kind and in front of the entire audience there at the beginning of his remarks. He acknowledged me as somebody who had run against him in that campaign. I said, no, John, we were running together for, for the same office. I never run against anyone. And he laughed and told the audience, that's what I love about my libertarian friend. So, you know, people say, well, I run as a third-party candidate. Well, if you can get the attention of the guy who actually wins, uh, you can create social change without winning the election if you can win the battle of ideas. So I've rambled around a bit. I think there is something fairly described as an individual college. I think there's a core of it that perhaps has been engaged with this issue from the time of President Truman. I think perhaps it, it went rogue. Um, Richard Dolan thinks it went multinational and corporate and underground as a way to avoid the Freedom of Information Act. Maybe. Uh, thinks there's a breakaway civilization. To give that less credulity. Others think there's a secret space program and we're already traveling the cosmos with some sort of high-tech anti-grav or space-time bending machines. I give that very low credibility, but some people think there is such a secret space program. I don't know. Mm -hmm. What I'm pretty sure of, though, is there's a wider circle outside of that core that, as far as I know, I've never encountered. People like Bob Bigelow and Hal Putoff and uh, Com Kelleher. Um, this guy, I can't pronounce his name, uh, who with Tom and, and George Knapp just published a book on the Skinwalker Ranch. It's Katsky. Do you mm -hmm. know how that yes. name is pronounced? Yes. Uh, Lekatsky, I believe. Lekatsky, that's right. I mean, I, I think these guys are, if not in the very inner circle, are around that campfire somehow. And then there's people like me a little further out, quite a bit further out, just sort of bumping into them occasionally and wondering what the heck's going on. Um, John Alexander uh, was the host for that SSE meeting in Vegas. It's his hometown. He's one of, I believe, the founding members or had been on the board. And part of what John arranged, which was so extraordinary, was a tour of Bigelow Aerospace. Mm -hmm. So I got to go there um, on buses from the convention center out, out to Bigelow's property, saw the control room for Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. I don't know if your listeners are aware, but we have two inflatable space habitats orbiting the Earth right now. Neither of them uh, occupied, but test craft to see if this inflatable technology would be durable and, and could support life. And then later, Bigelow attached one to the International Space Station, blew it up like a balloon. Yeah. Uh, gives a much larger space and, and what they uh, believe is a safer space compared to the tin can of, of the older parts of the space station. Anyway, I, my tour guide was Tom Geller. <laughs> and... Um, uh, it's just an extraordinary experience of, of seeing what they're developing for, for human occupancy in low Earth orbit. Incredible. So I'm pretty sure Bigelow might be around the edges of that in, in, invisible college. I don't know how far in or if he has the same questions I have. And then I'm pretty sure, as I'm sure you are as well, and anybody who looks at this issue, is whatever human beings have the greatest amount of knowledge on this subject, I suspect they realize they know even less than we do in terms of the, the grand questions. Amen. I imagine they're just left bewildered, um, having confronted whatever it is that they know that we, we'd all like to know as well. I, I don't think there's any human beings on the planet who've got 
some sort of end level of answers to who we are, why we're here, what's the nature of reality, what's real physics look like, how do you travel the stars. Um, I don't know. The things I wonder about, and I know you do too, and that, that's why I've enjoyed our friendship so much over the years, is it's rare to find people to have conversations like this with, because it seems to me like out of the 7 billion people on planet Earth, close to 7 billion of them are, are more concerned about what's going on in Hollywood or the latest pure sex scandal or the, yeah. the latest true crime story or, or just... Uh, but for an awful lot of us, just finding enough to eat so you don't go to bed hungry. Um, so asking questions about cosmology and the nature of reality and whether there's intelligent non-human life here, whether there's recovered technology we've attempted to reverse engineer. These are rare conversations. Not a lot of the planet is having them yet. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And, you know, most people are not as academic and scholarly in the way that they view this subject matter, and I appreciate that about you. Although it may be one of the most important missions overall in our quest for answers as to our place in the universe, in the incidents that you've researched, you mentioned that sometimes these witnesses or experiencers aren't treated all that well. Have you come across tales of the proverbial men in black, and who do you reckon they are? Huh. <clears throat> I have no clue who they are. Um, and yes, I have run across people who I know well who related incredible stories of having encountered what you might term men in black. And, and the first of those stories goes all the way back to the 1960s. Um, I, I, I've often asked myself, why am I interested in this subject? You know, how, how did that come to happen? Actually, uh, that reporter out of uh, Cape Cod, his last name's Farley. Dick Farley, mm -hmm. was at the ex-conference, press conference at, at the National Press Club, I think a year later, maybe 2009, and he asked me why I was interested in this, and I kind of fumbled around, and he says, well, I think you're a contactee. I think that's what causes people to get interested, and I thought, well, that's wacky. <laughs> I, I have no memory of ever having been a contactee of any kind, and I, I have a high hurdle for giving credulity to people who report encountering ET life or channeling the Pleiadian Galactic Council and that kind of stuff. I just, I don't want to call it crap, but it, it kind of goes into that bucket for me. And I admit that as a bias. I know some people find it very credible and, and helpful and enlightening or whatever. I, I just haven't focused on that. But Dick Farley's question got me wondering and thinking and, um, I had uh, bought an RV. This is going to be a long story, but I'll try to cut it somewhat short. I know I tend to ramble. Not at all. And I'll try to get back to the point of the men in black. I bought an RV in 1998, put my wife and four kids in it. They were all little kids, preteens. Uh, did a tour around the country. And then we did that again the next year, and we went down to Roswell. And Glenn Dennis and Walter Hott were still alive. Uh, and I met them, talked to Glenn Dennis at length, uh, he was interested in getting a smaller RV. Uh, the museum there was fascinating, and I realized something that shocked me, which was that Stan Friedman uh, didn't interview Jesse Marcel Sr. Mm -hmm. well, I think it was 1978, uh, or maybe that's when the book was published. Um, and I had been asking about 
UFOs at Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 1974. So in that museum, I thought, how the heck did I know to ask about recovered flying saucer Hangar 18 at Wright-Patterson in 1974? Well, I was a sophomore in high school, and I had entered a science fair in Indiana. I grew up just north of Louisville, Kentucky. And I was playing around with lasers and holograms in 1974. I bought a kit. Back in those days, pre-internet, you could get these catalogs of scientific equipment. They were just fascinating, full of stuff for people doing science fair projects. <laughs> and so I ordered a ruby red laser from a, a company, and I, I soldered together the power supply, and I built a mounting for the ruby red laser. It was about the size of two Pringle cans, one on top of the other. Mm-hmm. And it plugged into the wall, didn't run on batteries. Um, the tube for the laser was about a little smaller than the size of one of those Pringle cans. I got to be one of the first people on earth to discover that you could point a ruby red laser dot at the floor and drive your cat nuts. <laughs> so I was doing that again in 1974. Well, I won the science fair, got all sorts of awards, uh, got an award from the Air Force, and uh, went up to Indianapolis uh, uh, at the same arena that's in Rocket Boys, the movie the same science fair 10, 12 years after the one that's in Rocket Boys. Werner von Braun was not there for mine. But um, part of the award for the Air, from the Air Force included a trip to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Oh. Um, so off I go. And um, I remember it very clearly because, you know, the interstate highway system was still pretty new. And that was probably the long, furthest I'd gone away from home without my mom or dad. Um, about a two-hour drive away. Um, and I had this friend in scouting who was a, an older uh, advisor. You know, I was 14. He was probably 10 years older in his 20s. And he said, oh, if you're going up to Wright Pat, ask about the flying saucer in Hangar 18. So I did, quite innocently, <laughs> uh, ignorantly, uh, said to these two Air Force officers, uh, uh, you know, can I see the flying saucer? And um, I have a very vivid memory of part of that trip on the highway. Uh, we're in the car and we're passing a military convoy, and they say something about civilian cars aren't supposed to get in the middle of a convoy. And I said, well, if the law is not publicized, how do you expect people to follow it? <laughs> I guess I was a libertarian even then because uh, – I read somewhere all of us commit about nine felonies a day, mostly out of ignorance because the federal code is about as tall as the Empire State Building if you print the whole thing out. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, I have a vivid memory of that. I have no memory of being at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and then I have a vivid memory of them dropping me off at home when one of them says, uh, later that day, it was nighttime by now, says, uh, do I turn left to get to your parents' house? And I said, yeah, that's right. He said, don't ever say that. You should say that's correct. If you say that's right, it could be confusing. Now, why do I have these two very vivid memories and no memory of being at right path? I don't know. So after I visit the Roswell Museum, 1999, maybe it was 98, but I think it was 99, um, I started wondering about these things. So I called my friend Pete up, and I said, boy, you're trying to get me killed? How did you know about <clears throat> flying saucers at right path, 1974? And um, told him the story I just told you. 
And he said, well, he had a friend who was a certified uh, flight instructor. My friend Pete was a private pilot. This was the guy who taught him to fly. Flying buddies are often best friends. So my, my buddy was really interested in uh, flying saucers, so we went to this thing at the University of Louisville with a talk, and they talked about a flying saucer right path. So we drove up there, and we tried to get into Hangar 18 or Building 18. And he says, really funny, Joe, for about a year after that, I was followed around by guys who drove a dark sedan and wore dark suits and sunglasses with narrow ties. If I ever met with my friend at, at uh, Frisch's, Frisch's is kind of like Denny's, or Bob's Big Boy back then in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So these other guys would show up and sit at the uh, booth across from us and just stare at us and say I was a followed around for about a year. So that's my one men in black story. It took a long time to get there. Um, so I've been really interested in what happened at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And y- Yvonne Smith has offered to regress me. I told the story to Lynn Mulhow 20 years ago. She said I should go see Leo Sprinkle. I've never done that. Now Leo's in his 90s, I think. Um, but I would like to recover the memory of what happened there. And the only other thing that, that relates to that is when I graduated from college, I had an overwhelming desire out of nowhere to apply for a job with Sandia Labs. And I, I remember going to the, to the stacks in, in the Indiana University Library, that beautiful building they have there, and looking up um, Sandia Labs. I just... For no reason. I was looking at the RAND Corporation. I had a friend who had gotten a job with Bell Labs. I don't know where I ever heard of Sandia. And, of course, my undergrad degree was in marketing. I didn't pursue a career studying electronics or holograms. But uh, Linda or or, uh, maybe it was Yvonne or somebody said, you know, that was probably a hypnotic suggestion they gave you at right path. I'd also told this story to a friend of mine who worked in intelligence for the United States Army and was just absolutely convinced that I had been chemically debriefed. He said, if you were asking about flying saucers in 1974, they didn't have a sense of humor. Uh, They may have pulled you aside, uh, given you a drug to find out how you need to ask about that. And he said, the reason I say that is one of the common side effects of that drug is you have a very clear memory of before it takes effect have a very clear memory of after it wears off and nothing in between. And uh, I have uh, another friend who's a psychiatrist I've shared this story with, and he said, yeah, uh, I know what kind of drugs they were using in the 60s. That's a common kind of story. He said the the memories you might have are probably completely unrecoverable if that's what they actually did. And I said, you give this story credence? He said, yeah, absolutely. He said, I said, you believe I was chemically debriefed as a high school student at Wright Pat, 1974? He says, I absolutely believe it. And I said, you know, you believe it more than I do. Why is that? He said, it's because it's not the first time I've heard this story. Mm-hmm. Um, Linda Moulton House has said she was aware that this invisible college um, was recruiting, um, uh, grooming, uh, identifying early on uh, people who might join the organization later by sending people to high school science fairs, like looking for the brightest minds uh, to, to kind of monitor and watch, and maybe develop, and then bring into the organization, you know, a decade later. Sure. Uh, if that's the case, I probably uh, messed up horribly. <laughs> <laughs> I never got such an invitation. 
But uh, what I've just told you uh, on this podcast, that whole story of visiting Wright Pad, I've only told that uh, one or two other times. Um, It's something I had been uncomfortable talking about and um, never shared it at a a conference or uh, other than in private conversations late at night. So it'll be interesting to see if (laughs) your podcast stirs up any reactions for anyone. But I believe my friend Pete, when he tells me he was followed around by guys who look like classic men and black guys, because I've known this guy since I was in my early teens, and, uh, and he's an honest guy. Yeah, absolutely. And many of the top minds researching, let's just call it high strangeness in general, have gathered that human observers of this phenomenon are receivers of sorts. And as Jacques Vallée, I believe, has mentioned, there's typically two types of UFO reports, the ones that are reported to authorities and the ones that are shared with trusted listeners. Do you think that some feel the need to go to authorities and are these typically less dogmatic individuals or less religious individuals? And what part, if any, do you think religion or spirituality plays in UFO cases? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, uh, Eric Von Donneken is somebody who's been at the Contact in the Desert Conference uh, yeah. frequently, maybe even every year. The guy's in his 80s, the last time I saw him, and, and full of energy. And when I was in high school or junior high, I read Chariots of the Gods, um, or maybe there was a TV thing about it or something. So it was kind of loosely aware of it, but I went to Von Donegan's presentations because one of the big benefits of being a speaker at these conferences is you can go to the other speaker's presentation, um, which is something I did. I didn't see a lot of other speakers doing. They were mostly hanging around or selling books or or doing other stuff, but uh, I find Von Donegan's take fascinating, and he deconstructs the Book of Enoch as not a spiritual experience with uh, the God of the Old Testament, but of a UFO encounter, and talks about how he's uh, taken up and and caused to become naked and covered in a holy oil, uh, which Von Tonneken says it sounds more like he was covered in some sort of antibacterial soap, um, and then given a view of the earth from the heavens. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a fascinating story. Ezekiel the wheel within wheels, is that a flying saucer spinning? Um, you know, some um, some think that these lenticular craft uh, are able to, to uh, do what they do with a propulsion system that maybe involves spinning mercury at a high speed around the edges of the craft, some sort of inner tube-like thing full of spinning, maybe magnetized, electrified, I don't know, high-speed mercury um, Wheel within wheel in Ezekiel, is that what he's trying to talk about? So there's this idea that maybe all of religion uh, is a misperception of encounters with biological life that evolved somewhere else, developed the technology, and flew here. Right. I don't know. Right. Uh, Buddhism. Boy, that, that stuff looks wacky. Um, and, and I say that with good humor, because when I was on the faculty at Indiana University, I developed a friendship with Thubten Norbu, the older brother of the uh, Buddha of Compassion, the Dalai Lama. Uh, Norbu was the head of the Kumbum Monastery in Tibet. He was studying there when he was uh, 15. When he was 17, his younger brother was born and then identified as the reincarnation of the Buddha of Compassion. And when... uh, 
when the Dalai Lama was about 15 or 16, uh, the Chinese came and, and Norbu was imprisoned and threatened with death uh, unless he would go to uh, Lhasa and kill his younger brother. And he lied and mm-hmm. said, yeah, I'll do that mm-hmm. so that he could regain his freedom. By his religious standards in the moment, he told his first lie in his entire lifetime. He lost his reincarnation as the, the head of this monastery. But he got to Lhasa and told his younger brother, we've got to get out of Tibet. Um, and, um, uh, and his younger brother said, no, I'm going to stay. He was going through the process of all the ceremonies involved with being fully vested as the Dalai Lama. But he sent Norbu to America to raise attention for the Tibetan uh, cause. And eventually Norbu wound up at Indiana University teaching Tibetan and Mongolian and uh, the history of, of Tibet and Mongolia. And he was a fascinating professor there. I met him after he'd retired. But, yeah, this is a human being who grew up, you know, I don't know, 12,000 feet in the mountains there outside Lhasa, mm-hmm. uh, saw his whole culture invaded and destroyed. He was still very sad about it in his 80s. And um, who um, had a great compassion um, for other people because of that suffering. Um, You know, I I got to meet the Dalai Lama a few times because of the relationship our family had developed with Norbu. He was like an uncle to our kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, somebody asked uh, the Dalai Lama in my presence, uh, who's your greatest teacher? And he said, the Chinese, because I wanted to learn about compassion. And because of what I experienced, um, I got to grow as a human being who could be forgiving. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I get upset at somebody who cuts me off in traffic. (laughs) Don't look at that as an opportunity to grow in experiencing a greater level of compassion and forgiveness. Who is this man who could say such a thing? Um. So I wonder about the connection between religion and, and, and all of this. Um, and I, I said earlier, I feel a little bit like Forrest Gump around this <laughs> field. I'll, I'll tell you about another individual um, who may not, uh, certainly doesn't want me sharing his name, but I'm going to share it anyway. Please don't bother my friend. I, I don't think you'll mind. Uh, but I have a good friend I met in 1975 at a Boy Scout thing couple of years older than me, became a physician, um, went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, um, went to work as a backcountry wilderness uh, first responder in, in uh, the Grand Canyon, joined the Air Force, became a pilot. His dream was to fly in a shuttle. And he was in the, in the queue to, to be trained to be a shuttle uh, astronaut when uh, Challenger exploded on liftoff. Mm-hmm. January of 1987, and um, and then he aged out. So he became chief of medical operations in uh, in Houston. And um, I got to visit him uh, there. Got to sit in mission control, the flight surgeon's chair, and uh, had some great conversations with him. And I asked him about. The question I said was, hey, we don't really have flying saucers shadowing our shuttles on orbit, do we? (laughs) (laughs) And that was the end of that conversation. Um, uh, And just to to cut to the chase on this, he's never revealed anything 
Um, so somebody's listening wonder what Roger told. I don't think I'll mention his last name, but you could probably look him up from what I've said. Somebody's wondering what Roger told Joe. As far as I know, he's violated no NDAs. He hasn't told me anything, um, you know, that I'm keeping a secret from you. But what he did say was, look, Joe, you got to understand, to get this kind of a job, you got to sign certain agreements that basically eliminate the Bill of Rights. So as much as, as, much as I might like to talk about some things, even, if my, even with my own wife, if I were to do so, I'd go to a place worse than Leavenworth. Um, uh, she would lose the pension and the health care benefits. So please don't ask me about this subject again. Wow. Like, wow. Well, that's an interesting answer to the question, do we have flying saucers shadowing our, our shuttles? I had dinner with him uh, a little over a year ago. Uh, he's now in private practice in Fort Collins. Wonderful physician doing some cutting-edge stuff, not just traditional allopathic medicine, but bringing in other modalities, has people coming from all over the world. And can you imagine your personal physician as the guy who uh, was once chief medical operations at, at NASA? That's so cool. Um, by the way, I'd misunderstood that. Some other tellings of the story, I called him the chief medical officer because chief of medical operations is CMO, and I thought it was chief medical operator. Uh, chief medical operator. That's a guy in D.C. who's a political appointment. Roger was kind of the head physician for NASA. Did all the annual physicals and all the moonwalking guys. Um, developed all the medical processes for what was monitored on shuttle missions back in the 90s and all that. So I had dinner with him, and I said, hey, Roger, I know you asked I not ask you about this subject ever again, but have you seen the videos from the Nimitz? Uh, he's Navy pilots, yeah, extraordinary stuff. And he says, no, I haven't seen any of the videos. And I said, well, you really should. You should look at the videos. And he said, is that the ones where they show this kind of hot water heater thing, a white kind of cylinder, and it flies along and zips under the water and flies up again and goes off out into space? I said, yeah, so you've seen the videos. He said, I haven't seen the videos. I saw that while I was flying in the Air Force. <laughs> I'm like, so you know we're not alone in the universe. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know what I saw. But uh, he said, Joe, I just don't think about those things. He says, you need to stop thinking about those things. You need to get right with Jesus. So my friend Roger is a very devout Christian, and he worries about me because I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I, uh, I have very good friends who are, and I, and I have been in the past, but... Uh, and I live in Utah, where, you know, if I want to go to church, I, I could walk to four or five, but they're all LDS, and, and I'm not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, grew up a Methodist. But Roger worries about me, thinks I should get back into a good Bible-believing church. Um, so, yeah, here you have a guy who was on track to fly on a shuttle, became chief of medical operations, Saw stuff when he was flying for the Air Force that looks a lot apparently like what's in the Nimitz videos. And his reaction to all that is, don't focus on all that. Get right with God. Interesting. So that's my story about the connection between UFOs and religion. I'm not sure if that answered your question. You could try answering it again. I think I forgot what it was. <laughs> Definitely does. I think it does. And you do find a lot of these official individuals are quite religious in some uh, circumstances. And you've had the, the pleasure of hearing uh, various UFO reports under a variety of different circumstances. And do you feel that they all have something in common, or do they vary as much as the participant observers? Yeah, I mean, 
I consider a lot of what people have to say about their encounters with UFOs or, you know, there's a prominent mm-hmm. researcher whose name I won't mention, who I find lacking in credibility, claims to have encountered ETs in person um, at various mountain ranges. Actually, there's two of those that come to mind. They tell the <laughs> same similar story. I was with one of them at... Um, uh, near the Great Sand Dunes National Park, and I just found it to be a load of crap. Uh, I'm sorry. And the, and the other one's out at Mount Shasta. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, so stories that I find to be made up, not credible, I need to chuck all those off to the side. So I'll, I'll rephrase your question a bit. Among the stories that I find credible, or at least worthy of further study, there you go, yeah, uh, or seemingly hard to fake, um, is there a commonality there? Yeah. Um, I haven't really put that into any kind of formal analysis, but the, 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 the ones I find credible that come to mind are, first of all, Travis Walton. Um, Jennifer Stein's done a wonderful documentary called Travis. I forget the subtitle, something like The True Story. Um, I've met Travis a dozen times over the years. If that guy's made this up as some story... Uh, yeah, he deserves an Oscar. He, he's been totally consistent. He's not been out apparently to make any money at it or seek any fame at it. If anything, it, it kind of ruined his life, uh, destroyed a lot of friendships and relationships, even his own family among those who believed him and among those who still believe maybe it was all some sort of hoax. Uh, but what Jennifer uncovered in her documentary was that the sheriff at the time who thought his logging buddies had committed murder and, you know, treated them that way as they did the investigation, uh, later came out and said, you know, I couldn't believe they all passed the lie detector test. Now, there's one guy that had some issues because he had a warrant and he was using an assumed name, but it had nothing to do with Travis's experience, that they saw this clearly non-human created advanced technology craft, saw Travis somehow um, negatively impacted by some sort of discharge. They went running away in their vehicle. They came back and he was gone. And Travis reports having about an hour's worth of memories of being on a ship and, and running down a circular hallway and coming off the ship to find him on, that he was in a ship on a hangar with other ships and this huge craft, yeah. you know, bigger than a flying Walmart. <laughs> uh, and then lost consciousness, got returned five days later. That is a fascinating story. Um, he's not revealed publicly the exact GPS coordinates of of where this occurred in the Shallow Forest. I've driven through there. It's one creepy place. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, dirt roads, my little RV van. Uh, but Travis told me, and I think this, this now has, has been studied, and, and maybe eventually this will be a site that's easy for people to visit, but it, it's overgrown and changed a lot. The tree rings in the spot where he says this happened, and, and Jennifer covers this in her film, there's a growth pattern toward the center of this open space where he says this happened, that nobody can explain. Why would trees grow more in a direction toward where this beam of light seemed to hit Trump? I don't know. The Betty and Barney Hill story. Right. Why would an interracial couple in the 1960s want to draw attention to themselves by telling a UFO story? I don't know. Yeah. I find it more likely to believe something happened to them. I contacted uh, Betty Marsden, Stan Friedman hooked me up with her and actually drove the route as best I could because the interstates had built, built over the top of it. 
uh, along where they were uh, abducted, um, where they had this encounter. Um, there's a spot uh, where they were returned that's now like a cul-de-sac subdivision kind of thing that Betty helped me just find that. I was interviewing for a faculty position at New England College, so I, I spent an extra day just to drive their route. Um, I find that highly credible, and, and there are others. But, you know, people who provide things without evidence, yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier, I'd just been listening to Lou Elizondo, two-and-a-half-hour interview. I want to go back and listen to it again. Mm -hmm. But he's very critical of someone I'm very critical of as well, and, uh, and a lot of people are, and that's Stephen Greer. Yeah. Uh, we won't say his name, but he, he talks about people who've created kind of a cult following who make extraordinary claims with no evidence to say that theirs is the only view which is correct and everybody else is somehow corrupt, that create shell companies that they close down, and Greer's created a bunch of them. Uh, the Seas, Space Energy Access Systems, the Project Arrow, the Project Phoenix, all these are organizations he created, raised money to reverse engineer zero-point energy or whatever, took money, shut them down. I, I've met some of the investors who were very angry about that. Saw him at a Tesla conference uh, talking about how this breakthrough was imminent, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Dr. Greer, if you're listening, if your fans are listening, I'll ask you again, who is Admiral Moran? I gave Dr. Greer an oath at the uh, Citizens Hearing on Disclosure in 2013. I was the guy, the members of Congress said, you give everybody the oath. Uh, and then I got to fill in as one of the members of that panel after Darlene Hooley left because her sister had died. So I got, I got to fulfill her role on Friday afternoon, which was an incredible honor. So there were seven of us on that panel. I got one half of one day. But, hey, I'm claiming it. And Dr. Greer, I gave you and everyone else, all 43 witnesses, that oath to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. And Dr. Greer testified there is an Admiral Moran who we are meeting with who has an MD like me and a PhD and won the Ampere Prize in France and is an advisor to President Sarkozy. He testified to this to those former members of Congress and me. So right after the event, I typed up a transcript listened to the audio, typed up every word. I was going to publish it. And Jeremy Corbell stopped me from publishing it. Didn't want to do anything to interfere with his ability to monetize that video. Okay, fine. I don't completely disagree with that, but I did a lot of work that I got nothing for, and it's okay. Uh, but in the process of typing the transcript, I created footnotes for every... Uh, general that was mentioned, every military base. I looked up the spellings of South American closed military bases, and, and uh, Dr. Sun Shuvi from China looked up the correct spelling of all of his testimony, and I run into Dr. Greer's, and I've got the list of Ampere Prize winners in France, and there's nobody named Marin. Mm. Got a list of admirals from France. There's no admiral named, named Marin. There's no advisor to say, so I write the good doctor. And I I don't have a bias against Dr. Greer. I spent a week with him in Crestown um, mm -hmm. back in 2005, I think. Um, and I said, hey, I'm just trying to correct this. You know, uh, did I spell Marin wrong or, or did you make a misstatement? I'm thinking maybe I, I get names confused sometimes too. And he said, let me check my records. I'll get back to you. That's the last email I've gotten from the good Dr. Greer. I have asked repeatedly. I've had other people ask him. Uh, in my view, his failure to correct, if it was a misstatement, is the equivalent of a lie. 
And then I've presented on this uh, at SSE and other uh, conferences with a paper called The Search for the Mysterious Admiral Moran. Wow, I got attacked by some of his uh, supporters. I am a being of darkness out to attack the truth-telling about the enlightened aliens that if they cross the, the, the veil of the, the speed of light, they somehow have to be all enlightened and kind. I don't know. But boy, I was listening to this podcast today, and, and Lou won't say the good doctor's name, but it's clear who he's talking about. That does real damage to getting people to come forward from inside the government who might have been involved in whatever reverse engineering or research has been done when there's this clown car show going on of people making up total fabricated bullshit Mm -hmm. in order to sell books or or get people to pay money to come to their private events and somehow get a special experience. And um, I'm sorry, I I early on talked about how I thought we ought to pass legislation protecting whistleblowers. Call me a whistleblower. Um, I mentioned the Great Sand Dunes National Park. Yeah, it was Dr. Greel who went up uh, to Zapata Falls and said the ETs are just behind the trees over there. But you group of participants in my event, you're not enlightened enough. They don't feel safe to come into the clearing and talk to you. But they sent me down the mountain with a message. Wow. Whoa. (laughs) Is this Moses? Uh, And I'm looking at the other people there who are like, oh, oh, Dr. Greer, what was the message? I'm like, wow. Maybe I'm too much of a skeptic for the ETs to ever have open contact with me. But I'm sorry. Um. I think uh, Travis Walton and, and uh, Betty and Barney Hill have nothing in common with their their depictions of what actually happened and some made up crap. Uh, and, and I don't. And I'll, I'll say this in, in Dr. Greer's defense: I don't think he's the worst of that bunch. And I also think prior to about 2001, um, I'm pretty much an unreserved fan of what he was doing. Everything up through that. National Press Club event, back when he had Sherry Adamack working with him as kind of maybe a governor on, on his excesses, uh, I think he did some good stuff. And it's always a mixed bag. Like Lou Elizondo said in this interview I was listening to um, recently, he said, you know, in, in, in every blanket of deceit, there's a few fibers of truth. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a more than a few fibers of truth. What Greer did to get people on video and sign affidavits and get witnesses to come out from the background early on, yeah, I don't have a lot of criticism of that. Uh, yeah. Charging multi-thousands of dollars for exclusive events out in the desert with some sort of at least implied promise that you're going to meet an ET. Wow. One of the meditations we did in Crestone, uh, the good doctor said, oh, we're now on the bridge of a partially materialized craft. Look, there's the captain's chair. And I thought, they have chairs? They have captains? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was just like a warm breeze. And if you've been out in the desert at night, there's a mixture of cool and warm breezes. But um, either I'm not enlightened enough to, to have those incredible experiences or there's some sort of misrepresentation going on there. Um, yeah. So, no, I don't think every board has something in common. I think that, I think that you need to use your own judgment, the mind God gave you, and be discerning because... Uh, whether it's religion or politics or uh, science. Uh, I know in academe, um, you know, there was a recent study that showed something like at least a third of what was published in the Journal of the American Psychological Association was based on fabricated data 
people just made up out of thin air in order to get a publication for tenure. And I went back and looked at this stuff, and in religion and in, in every field, there are hoaxers. There are people who can make an easy buck. The, the Jim and Tammy Faye Bakers of the world, if you want, with their Heritage USA theme parks that Jesus <laughs> wanted you to have a roller coaster. I don't know. But that, that kind of person is attracted wherever they can make money. And there are certainly, it seems to me, it would be unreasonable to expect there aren't similar people in the UFO field. And, uh, and you, you know, and you get flack for criticizing them. I couldn't believe the blowback I got for presenting an academically based paper at SSE saying, help me find this Admiral Moran. Did, did Dr. Greer misspeak or what? Uh, resulted in a couple of people coming up and telling me I was a being of darkness because I was criticizing their, their, uh, uh, the person they were a fan of. And then somebody else said, hey, there's a, uh, like a, uh, an Admiral Marin in Canada, so maybe he just misspoke. And I'm like, well, the guy in Canada doesn't, hasn't won the Ampere Prize and is not a medical doctor. So that's, that's a pretty big misspoke. Yeah. Sorry, you pushed the play button on one of my hot <laughs> issues, which is don't lie about this. This is the most important issue, I, I think, for the future of humanity, if not our past as well which is, who are we? Why are we here? What's our place in the cosmos? And if you're going to make up something that you say some advanced being and some galactic council told you, boy, when the truth comes out, first of all, I hope you suffer uh, the, the justice consequences of that. Uh, and there ought to be a special place in hell for people who mislead other human beings just to, I don't know, get a sense of ego out of it or get the dollars out of it or whatever. Yeah. What's your experience about that, Ryan? Do you have any comments on what I've just said? Is this going to create controversy among your listener base? I don't know. <laughs> I, frankly, I don't care. But I am interested in what you think of it all. I think you're right. There seems to be a wealthy corporate cabal in just about every organization. And unfortunately, the UFO field is not insulated from that. And um, as... as much as there, there's so many rave reviews for CE5 protocols and this and that and the other thing. But then again, I mean, it really is just a form of ritual magic, so to speak, to uh, get visitors from here or somewhere else to interact. And I, I've witnessed what, I guess, really uh, through other parties, I've never had any personal interaction except just speaking to the good doctor over the phone. But um, personally, the, what I've heard from others are similar tales of, um, I, I don't know, that just over, overcompensation for something that they thought they were going to play a part in. Yeah, and I want to distinguish the protocols and, and the value of meditation and seeking to be peaceful and open an invitation for whatever life is out there to visit from what I just described as being lied to at the hearings in Washington, D.C. Um, every human being probably is a mixed bag. I, I know I am. Um, uh, maybe I'm too judgmental. Maybe I go too quickly to anger. I'm sure I do, both of those things. Um, but I, I seek to be that advocate for radical voluntarism and truth-telling and the value of the scientific method, if you will. Um, and the CE5 protocols are not trademarked or copyrighted or the exclusive domain of, 
of, of any one given individual. Um, and, uh, and they're kind of dis- discoverable uh, naturally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know I've spent a fair amount of time camping out in the deserts of Utah. Oh, yes. And I'll tell you what, um, if you want to develop that kind of orientation toward contact or wonder about our place on the planet, get out west or somewhere with low humidity, get up at a high altitude, get into a desert environment, and spend three or four nights alone looking at the sky. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the idea of what sometimes is presented as CE5 protocols just becomes a natural way of being after a couple of days in the desert. Um, I think there's great value in that. One, one of my good friends um, uh, is a, now retired from having worked with an organization called the Anasazi Program down in Arizona where they take troubled teenagers, mostly, uh, some older, uh, out into the woods uh, of Arizona for maybe a month, and they live pretty much like the Anasazi Indians lived, just getting in touch with nature. Excellent. And they have a remarkable success rate, from what I've read, been reported to me at least, in terms of these troubled kids coming back into their families and having a completely different orientation toward a desire to cut themselves or consume uh, drugs that impact them negatively or alcohol. Uh, and get a new passion for life and making a positive difference in the world simply from having lived out in nature. Um, you know, I, I think maybe if, if we, uh, if we could all do that, um, it would diminish the, the desire among us to go to war with each other, to fight over geographic territory or limited resources or political differences or whatever we like to fight over. If we just get out and, and do what these kids do in the Anasazi program or, or just get out and, and do the, the four or five days um, in a desert setting. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars to do that. Right. Uh, I think there might be value in doing it alone, too, rather than with a group of people. And certainly, I think there's great value in doing it without a, quote, leader who's telling you whatever. Um, yeah. And then if we, if we were to do that, maybe, maybe the planet would be a place that some enlightened life might like to drop by. Yeah. I remember Stan Friedman, God bless him, and I just, it's tragic he didn't live long enough to see disclosure happen or even what's happened the last couple of years. Stan was a good man and uh, um, brought, you know, a seriousness to the field back in the 70s that, that really wasn't exi- didn't exist. And he was doing the, the actual work to go to the presidential libraries and repositories and, and the work that led him to have somebody say, you need to meet Jesse Marcel with that. Without that happening, the whole Roswell story probably never would have opened up. We owe a debt of gratitude to Stan. But Stan used to say at, at conferences, you know, imagine you're an advanced ET looking at planet Earth. Maybe you're a junior high school student whose project was to go out in the boonies and write a report on the savages, some planet on the outer edge of the, soul, uh, the galaxy. How would your report read? You know, observation of life on Earth, human beings, dominant um, creature, uh, primary uh, activity, killing each other, mm-hmm. primary economic activity, developing ever more lethal ways of killing each other, mm-hmm. primary social activity, watching horrible uh, uh, fiction and films and movies about the acts of killing each other. Mm-hmm. Who wants to drop by that planet? Yeah. You know? uh, so we, if we could maybe reduce all of that a bit, 
um, you know, uh, uh, maybe maybe somebody would want to show up for tea. I, I know I'd like to get off this planet and find find the version of Libertopia I hope is out there somewhere. I say that kind of in jest. Um, <laughs> yeah, you mentioned my desire for adventure travel. I've been to China and Mongolia, uh, Asia. I want to get to Europe. I haven't done that. Um, I've seen most of America, though. I have that RV with 360,000 miles on it now. I've been in every awesome. one of the 48 states. This is a beautiful planet. And uh, I was really struck by uh, William Shatner's coming back down from his 10 minutes at the top of a very primitive elevator. Yeah. Uh, but he got to see the curvature of the earth and the, the fragileness of the atmosphere that gives us life, the thinness of that, out of all the blackness of space and all of the death that is at the core of the planet from a few feet down all the way to the molten core. There's this little bit of life on the skin of the earth. And boy, when he came back and talked about that, I, I, like, yeah, Bill, I think everybody can see that. You don't necessarily need to go up, you know, 60, 70 miles and look back down. You can sort of realize that for yourself, how fragile and precious life is here. Um, and, uh, and become somebody who wants to defend that and, and praise it and honor it and feel grateful for it. And then you get to a place that these so-called protocols you don't need somebody telling you how to do that. Um, it can be easily encountered naturally, I think. And I know you've done that, too. I think you, wasn't it you that told me a story about being out in one of Utah's national forests and encountering an egg-shaped vehicle? Is that your story? I don't think it was, but... Uh... Uh, maybe it's <laughs> Alien Dave, then. I get the two of you confused sometimes. Yeah, of course. And that's normal. But I have witnessed, to your point, I have witnessed things that are not typically seen. So, but I have yeah. to say, I have to say that it, it is, it is so interesting how you have been brought together with people either by this strange coincidence, synchronicity or phenomena. And your adventure is, I like that you akin it to, it's, it's akin to uh, Forrest Gump, because it really is your saga on this adventure is, is just so interesting. And I always love talking to you about it. And you're, you're, you're you've got a great and upbeat, uh, philosophy about it all. And, and you're also very scholarly and real, a realist, which is, you know, it's hard to come across all those things in a responsible way. So I, I appreciate the way that you give credence to the unexplained can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast, Joe, and I hope we talk again soon. Um, and anything, any last comments or remarks before we wrap things up? No, I, uh, well, two things actually now that now you think about it. So this will go another 15 minutes, but I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> yeah, man. Now, two things is years ago, a after visiting that museum and talking to my friend in the Army Intelligence and realizing all this stuff, I, I thought about, yeah, I want to talk to the ETs. And, and I don't need a, a big uh, radio telescope or broadcast transmitter to do that. If they're here, they're downloading the Internet. So some years ago, I put up a website. I still own the domain. I'm going to put it back up again, probably before the end of the year. And it's www.thepeopleofearthapologize.com. Love it. And I just thought, boy, if I'm going to start a conversation with some wise being out there, where would I start? And I, I'm ashamed of the mess we've made of planet Earth. And, and I think Bill Shatner had that same kind of orientation. We need to, to clean up our own nest, stop killing each other, stop polluting. 
the, the planet to the point that it doesn't support uh, uh, life. So um, look for that. I think I need to get that up. I need to get my transcript of the citizens hearing up. I think it's time. Jeremy and Ruben have basically put it all up for free on YouTube now, although they edited Steve Bassett out. Oh, my goodness. Human beings are nuts and, and the crazy, hurtful things we do. Um, anyway, I'm going to do that. And the other one I wanted to leave you with is I met Ray Bradbury once. Mm-hmm. He uh, took a train to Utah because he didn't fly. Uh, and he gave a talk up at Utah State University. And I also recorded that, typed up a transcript, and sent it to him. It's one of those things I like doing, recording things, typing up transcripts, sharing them. Ray wrote me back uh, a wonderful thank you note. But what he said in that uh, still struck me, which was he regretted being alive now because we're too close to the cave and too far from the stars. And he wanted to be a human being who could live when we, we travel among the stars. Yeah. And so do I. Um, and he just said, I'm an enthusiast for life. What you have before you is an enthusiast for life. That's how he started out his talk. So I just leave everybody with the idea that let's do things that honor life and advance life and end suffering and uh, bring us to a place where the, the earth might look like the Garden of Eden it was intended to be, I believe, such that Whatever life that's out there that's peaceful feels comfortable dropping by. Yeah. I know I wouldn't feel real comfortable dropping by if I had never been here before. <laughs> it's a little bit of a scary place right now, but let's, let's move it forward. Surely we can all agree on doing that, regardless of political orientation or attitudes about various UFO researchers. Let's just all agree we want to move the planet forward to being in place that advanced people, peaceful life would feel more comfortable dropping by for a while. Amen. That's how I felt on your podcast, Ryan. Thanks for having me here. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Phenomenal individual with mind-blowing accuracy at approaching the UFO subject. Joe Bookman is a great guy and uh, has a very solid base of reason as a philosophical, radical volunteerist and He is, uh, well, if there is something to the Invisible College, Joe would have surely gained some knowledge of it in his fascinating travels. It seems that there is a spark of sorts, intelligences, lighting a fire of which very little is known. It's called the Invisible College of UFO Study. And although none claim to be members of such an organization, many have basked in the warm light of its glow. In the words of the 1999 movie starring Brad Pitt, which was likened to the Invisible College in Diane Pazulka's book, American Cosmic, the first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. Joe's life seems much like Forrest Gump's in that he synchronistically ends up at the right place at the right time. And whether this is fate, or a byproduct of the very phenomena we speak of may never be known. Regardless, his incredible journeys and accounts should be taken into consideration. The fascinating result of this group that, for all intents and purposes, denies any actual existence, the Invisible College gained a name from J. Allen Hynek, and whether real or not, in any formal group sense, they are very much invisible, and yet a force upon the UFO field many will purport 
are the players on the frontiers of research. Couldn't be happier with the guest today. Magnificent guy. And uh, until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evizine. Blast off, blast off, blast off, blast off. Come blast off in my time machine, third eye feeling like an evizine. Blast off, blast off, blast off.